one of the governing principles of uh, government policy, of professional policy, of uh, institutional belief all across the Western world, and indeed the whole globe, is that global warming is an existential threat. Uh, CO2 via the burning of fossil fuels uh, threatens catastrophic changes to the earth, massive sea level rise, droughts, um, floods, famines, pestilences, and all manner of catastrophes uh, that's, that's then accepted without apparently any concern or questioning over the accuracy of any of these uh, predictions, that uh, massive social change and economic change must be forced on all of us in order to stave off this disaster and so that we make to live. And we're now seeing that the sort of psychological trickery that was played on the public during the COVID crisis is now being applied also openly, openly applied to the global warming narrative uh, by our governments and by those who advise them. And there are increasing, I'm pleased to say, and very brave voices that are speaking out to say this, this just isn't so. And looking at the scientific data and looking at the history and looking at the economics and looking at many aspects and bringing calm, um, logical reason to bear. And under that, the, the, the catastrophe, the crisis kind of goes away. And I think we're going to see more and more of this. This is going to be a major item of contention between the thinking part of the population and the governing part of the population. And then those Venn diagrams is increasingly no overlap uh, over the next decades. With this in mind, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to welcome today uh, Patrick Moore, uh, from all, speaking to us all the way from Vancouver Island in Canada. Uh, Patrick was a founder of Greenpeace um, and he was um, uh, six years as director of Greenpeace International, nine years as president of Greenpeace Canada. He was um, a, a central person in the ecology movement in the movement that, that was questioning such things as uh, nuclear testing, uh, industrial uh, hunting of whales, um, and, and many forms of pollution. And he now speaks out against global, global warming alarmism. Uh, Patrick, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, David. Now, I'd, I'd like to start um, with uh, just, the, just the early days within Greenpeace. Just if you could say a few words, I understand that you were part of of successful campaigns against I mean, many of the things that we associate with Greenpeace of old, uh, with environmentalism of old. So you were campaigning against atmospheric nuclear testing, against the exter extermination of the whale population, against seal clubbing and... Um, and, and, and issues like this, could, could you just give us a little outline of, of what the environmental movement and Greenpeace in particular was like in those days and, and what it was like to be part of it all? Well, it was the beginning of something 
that became uh, worldwide. And we were part of it. Uh, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, we had a bunch of us who were all kind of professionals. I was doing my PhD in ecology at the University of BC. And we all came together around this idea of sending a boat across the North Pacific Ocean to protest U.S. hydrogen bomb testing in the Aleutian Islands. So that's a big deal. I mean, just going to the Aleutian Islands is not easy. But to get a crew of people on an old halibut boat and sail across the North Pacific with the Coast Guard and the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission really monitoring us all the way and eventually arrested by the Coast Guard in Alaska and made headlines uh, across North America. We made Walter Cronkite's evening news. So we, this little band of rebels, decided to take on the world's most powerful organization, the United States Atomic Energy Commission, and we won. And it was very shortly after that hydrogen bomb, underground hydrogen bomb test occurred, that President Nixon canceled the remaining series of nuclear tests. And this is at the height of the Cold War, the Vietnam War, the threat of all-out nuclear war, and the emerging consciousness of the environment, all coming together at that time in the early 1970s. So we, we sailed that boat. We had tens of thousands of people marching in the streets across Canada and the United States. The border was closed the day that test went off, and it made a big bang. Uh, on the consciousness of people who were tired of this constant saber rattling between the United States and Russia with the threat of actually destroying most of our civilization in an all-out nuclear war. And th so that's what we were about. And when we finished with that, we turned our efforts towards the fact that 30,000 whales in, in the mid-1970s were still being slaughtered every year in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where no one could see it happening. So we went out there and put ourselves in front of the harpoons and got it on TV around the world. That was the big bang for Greenpeace was the campaign against whaling. It made us famous worldwide. Uh, the Russians and the Japanese were the bad guys uh, in this case, not the United States, which had caused a bit of division uh, people thinking we were traitors for being against the United States nuclear tests and that we were on Russia's side and we we're all a bunch of commie pinkos and all of that rhetoric. So we managed to self salvage our reputation by going against these whaling fleets at a political level, I mean. It wasn't really about politics for me ever, but Greenpeace gradually morphed into a movement that became more and more political and less and less scientific and less and less rigorous in terms of the underlying uh, rationale for its campaigns. And I found myself in an organization with fellow directors, none of whom had any science education. This is now 1985. Found myself in this group that decided we should ban chlorine worldwide and call it the devil's element. And I'm going, you guys, chlorine is one of the elements of the periodic table of, of matter in the world. It is a thing that you cannot get rid of. And not only that, it is part of salt, table salt, an essential nutrient, sodium chloride. So we have to make an exception for sodium chloride if we're gonna ban chlorine worldwide. And we have to state it clearly because we need it every day to live. And then of course, there was the addition of chlorine to drinking water and swimming pools, the biggest advance in the history of public health. 
And then, of course, 85% of our pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry, and 25% of them have chlorine in them. So maybe you should rethink this. And they didn't want to rethink it. They thought it was a great idea to have the devil's element uh, and to, to, to make chlorine into something awful uh, when, in fact, it provides a tremendous number of beneficial attributes to our civilization. So I had to leave. And, but there had been another thing niggling me for some time, but it wasn't so specific. Like this was the sharp end of the stick from my point of view. I couldn't stay in an organization that was against chlorine. And so I, I put up for some years with the transition in Greenpeace and the environmental movement in general from one that cared about people, like stopping nuclear war. You sort of caring about people not being all fried in a nuclear war. Suddenly, the human species was being characterized as the enemy of nature the enemy of the earth, like as if we were the only evil or bad species. And that was way too much like original sin for me. I am not a, uh, you know, scare tactic type person that wants to make people think that we're evil. So I had to leave and I was glad to, and I wrote a book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, The Making of a Sensible Environmentalist, where I chronicled the whole 15 year history of Greenpeace in the first half of the book, and then went through all the issues of environmental concern and showed that a lot of them were really not worthy, like banning chlorine, for example. And nowadays, you have the environmental movement basically campaigning to destroy civilization itself with this climate catastrophe emergency crisis, as they say, when in fact carbon dioxide is the basis of all life on Earth and it had gone to a low level, uh, the lowest level in the history of, of the Earth, which is 4.6 billion years. Uh, during the most recent glacial maximum, 20,000 years ago, CO2 dropped to 180 parts per million, which is only 30 parts above the death of plants, 150 parts per million. And people don't know that enough. So they're, they're totally wrong about there being too much CO2 because Every molecule of CO2 we emit into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels came from the atmosphere in the first place. We're just putting where it came from because those fossil fuels were made with CO2 from the atmosphere and the ocean. When CO2 was 6,000 parts per million, compare that with 180, life flourished. That was the Cambrian explosion of life 500 million years ago when multicellular life emerged. Prior to that, for 3 billion years, life had been unicellular, microscopic, and confined to the sea. Not very interesting times. And so I've studied this, the whole history of life, when photosynthesis began, when sexual reproduction began, when multicellular life began, and then the flourishing of life forms, both plant and animal, that have come along through the ages. And we are at a period of time right now, which is called the Pleistocene Ice Age. So they're not only wrong about CO2 being too high, when in fact it needs to be replenished, as it has been lost to the sediments over the millennia, and has come down to a level that is so low that it's too low for plants. They would like it to be twice what it is now, even after we've increased it by about 50%. So we are basically replenishing a substance that is essential for life 
And we're not getting any credit for that. That's for sure. They're making it out as if it's an evil thing to do. And they're absolutely wrong about that. And they are wrong about saying that it's too warm. This is an ice age. That's why there's ice on the poles. That only came about a few million years ago. Before that, for 200 million years, there was no ice on either pole. That's when the dinosaurs flourished and when all life flourished from pole to pole. There were giant camels on the Canadian Arctic islands, which are now more or less void of most life. There's only a few species up there because it's so cold. Antarctic is even colder because the southern hemisphere is mostly ocean and it's harder to make oceans warm than it is to make land warm. And so the northern hemisphere has always been warmer than the southern hemisphere, at least when the tectonic plates were in the shape they're in now, in the pattern that they're in now. It's been changing all through the history of the earth. And the whole idea that we can predict the future of the climate on the earth is about as absurd as anything you can get. And even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change admits in some of its huge volumes, which nobody ever reads, uh, it admits that because the climate is multilinear, chaotic, and multifactorial, in other words, there's many factors involved, you cannot predict future climate states. They have said that themselves, and then they go ahead and predict them with a computer model in, into which they have figured out what numbers to put. So, you know, everybody knows a computer model is not a crystal ball. Uh, and a matter of fact, there is no such thing as a crystal ball. It is a mythical object. And so is the ability to predict the future with a computer. The change from an organization, Greenpeace, that was dedicated to saving civilization to one that was dedicated to destroying civilization was really very stark. And I was, I was reflecting on when I spotted this. So, I mean, I, as an outsider, I, I spotted it many years after you did. But it would probably be Brent Spar. Now, I don't know if you remember this particular incident. But, um, oh, yes. Uh, so Brent Spar was a, a boy, part of the oil infrastructure from up near Shetland. And it was to be towed out and disposed of at sea. And there was a huge uh, protest. There was little guys in rubber boats um, boarding it and, and chaining themselves to the, 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 the facility. There was uh, break-ins and I think an arson attack at uh, Shell's offices in Germany. There was a huge um, campaign against this because it was going to be devastating to marine life. Now, yes. uh, I've, I've done a bit of fishing in the sea. Not an awful lot, but enough to know that where you find the fish is where the wrecks are. That whenever a ship which is full of fuel oil and lubricants and all these things sinks, um, the marine life colonise it and it becomes an artificial reef and it becomes absolutely surrounded by marine life and fish. And if you want to catch the fish, that's where you go and, and drop your line and hope for the best. And I'm looking at this, this can't be right because all of the things that we're saying about what dumping this thing into the ocean would do, I, I knew to be wrong. I knew the arguments were completely fallacious. And yet they were, A, making them very stridently, and B, were getting a very uh, positive 
uh, press coverage and spin and political response for doing this. And, and in fact, were successful in forcing the company concerned um, to haul the thing into some Norwegian fjord and cut it up. Now, um, so that was, that was my first inkling that something was seriously wrong. And then as I started to talk to people who'd been involved in the environmental movement, uh, they were saying, well, you know, when the wall came down, which was 89, so a few years after you've described the problems, um, and, and the, 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 the extreme left no longer had communism to believe in. They all came into the environmental movement and took it over. So I had kind of the date in my mind, because that was 89, 91 was Brent Spar. So I had around about 1990 as the point where this happened. But, but I, I, I've clearly been five or ten years too late there. When did you start to see the, the, the movement going significantly off the rails and starting to embrace these anti-life, anti-human thriving um, and, and, and far-left political views rather than seeking to protect the environment? Before the Brent Spar incident, I had already left Greenpeace some four years prior. Uh, so I'd already seen the writing on the wall much earlier. As a matter of fact, it was basically through the early 80s that I saw the situation deteriorating to the point where humans were being characterized, as I mentioned, enemies of the earth, uh, rather than being just part of the wonderful thing called life on this planet and uh, trying to get along uh, with the rest of life in a rational way. The problem is Shell Oil depicted this as a dumping of a waste. And all it was was a steel and concrete container that had been thoroughly cleaned of all the oil in it. And it was just like putting a rock on the bottom of the ocean they were going to put it in 6,000 feet of water, whereas they should have said, we're going to make an artificial reef out of this boat, out of this tanker, because uh, it was really just an oil storage platform. It wasn't for drilling or anything. It was just a big tank, basically. And so that is the mistake they made. Some years later, Greenpeace sank its own boat, the Greenpeace, the, the, the Rainbow Warrior, uh, after it had been bombed by the French in New Zealand, they purposefully sank it as a dive site in New Zealand. So what was the difference there? Well, probably there was still more oil on the Rainbow Warrior than there had been left in the Brent Spar. Uh, and, but this t caused a revolution. Uh, and I wrote quite a long essay on the subject after I left Greenpeace, showing this as an example of how stupid the situation had become. Because the... the the idea of artificial reefs is well known around the world. The Gulf of Mexico, that where there are 3,000 oil rigs uh, floating on the water, most fishing expeditions are targeted on those rigs because the Gulf of Mexico is just a big mud flat bottom. And so there's not any reefs or anything there for species to stick to. So they go for the, the legs of these huge oil rigs and there's more fish there than there is anywhere else in the Gulf of Mexico because it is an artificial reef that is providing habitat and food for species of fish and other creatures in the ocean. Uh, we know this to be true. Now, nowadays, of course, they're microplastic clogging up every fish or something. Uh, again, and of course, that's why I wrote my most recent book, Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Of course, doom has never come true. 
How many times have doom been predicted in the history of human civilization? At least a thousand. And, you know, oh, just throw a few virgins into a volcano or burn a few witches and everything will be okay. And so this kind of absolutely irrational sensationalism and brutality has occurred through the ages based on things that are entirely false and made up and, and, and for the sake of some uh, emperor's power, uh, they get away with wearing and it's, it's a shame. It's a shame, but I'm afraid it's the truth. Uh, we have to face this fact that we are being led now by a group of scientific illiterates just because they're billionaires doesn't mean they actually understand how nature works or how the, how the ecology works in this world or what the history of this earth is. And the history of this earth is we are in a cold period now called the Pleistocene Ice Age and saying that it's too hot is completely ridiculous. Not only that, humans, never mind the other species, uh, are a tropical species. We evolved at the equator. And if it wasn't for, for clothing and fire and housing, shelter, we couldn't not live in most of the places we're living today. And even still today, the majority of the human population is within the tropics. Uh, it just so happens, though, that a bunch of crazy people decided to go to really cold places and have a house with a heater in it so they could survive. And so that's the real truth of what's happening here. And people are being led to believe that we are in a climate crisis and, and that there's all these really, really smart scientists with computer models, which they decide what numbers to put in and decide how to predict the future. Whereas the fact is, the CO2 that we're putting in the atmosphere is one of the most positive things that has ever happened in the history of life on Earth because we are replenishing it back to a level that is balanced, which is more like 800 to 1,000 parts per million instead of 445 or so where it's at now. So that brings us to CO2. Now, there's, there's probably, um, if you talk to the general public who are convinced by the narrative, there's, there's two or three things that they will come up with. Um, the first one is carbon is bad. Despite the fact that they're carbon-based life forms, this doesn't seem to uh, necessarily compute. Carbon is bad, and when pushed a little bit more, you might get CO2. CO2 is the villain of the piece. Now, there are many things that are very concerning about this viewpoint. You mentioned one, which is the, it's, it's an essential nutrient. It's plant food, and without it, uh, the plants are dead, and if the plants are dead, we are dead. So that's, that's a problem. Um, the other aspect is and perhaps you could say a little bit about this, the effects um, decline as the concentration increases. So the, the greenhouse gas effect, which is never very much, of, of raising CO2 from 200 to 400 is small but measurable. But if you're looking at raising CO2 from 400 to 800 parts per million, it's all, it makes almost no difference because there's a, there's a logarithmic decline as CO2 concentrations increase in the greenhouse effects that are generated. So we've really got to a point where any warming coming from CO2 would have been very, very small 
and has already happened. I and really, going forward, to there's nothing. There's nothing it, left to happen. Is is that correct? Is that how you see things? Well, it's based on a doubling. So, if you have one part per million and you double it to two parts per million, you get the same degree of increase in global warming as you get from 400 to 800, another doubling. But that's a doubling of 400 instead of a doubling of one. And so that that's what's called a, 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 a I forget the name of it now. But anyways, it's an equation that is well known uh, and that applies to CO2. But CO2 couldn't ever be the, the dominant greenhouse gas in, in the atmosphere because water vapor is the dominant greenhouse gas responsible for at least 40%. And then there's the clouds, which aren't greenhouse gases, but they are extremely important in reflecting light back into space from their tops on bl a blanket, keeping heat in on the bottom of the clouds underneath them. Nobody can make a computer model that emul emulates or simulates uh, the, the climate of the earth. They just put the numbers they want into it and come up with the numbers they want. So whereas a doubling of CO2 from today's 400 plus to 800 plus would theoretically cause an increase in global temperature of 0.75%. Nobody would even notice that on a daily basis. It's, it's less than the difference between London and Paris, more or less. And so that would not be a problem. So it, there is no possibility that it will be a CO2 problem to go from 400 to 800. No possibility. And yet they make it out as though the Earth is coming to an end as a result of that. And they're just wrong about everything. The, the fact is, CO2 is the most important substance for life. One, one of my rules is anybody who calls CO2 carbon or carbon pollution should not be listened to for five seconds. Because scientists use names very carefully. Carbon dioxide is not carbon. It has carbon in it, and it has oxygen in it, which makes it a completely different thing from carbon. This is the, the, the nature of elements. When you combine them, none, neither of them look the same anymore. They look like something new, which is called a molecule. And if you say carbon pollution, you are scientifically illiterate, and you are part of a cult. Same thing with climate denier. I'm called a climate denier or a climate change denier. Oh, sure, right. I deny that there is a climate. That's what that phrase means, that sentence means. And, of course, it's a lie. Of course I believe that there is a climate. And I just don't believe it's a crisis or a catastrophe or an emergency. As a matter of fact, what we are doing is beneficial to life. And I've written a paper on it, The Positive Impact of Human CO2 Emissions, on the survival of life on Earth. And that it actually comes down to that. Our emission of CO2 into the atmosphere, returning the carbon that was there in the first place and got locked up in fossil fuels and carbonaceous rocks, which are called limestone, marble, chalk, and dolomite. All these rocks were once part of life. They were the shells of, of basically marine creatures like coral reefs, and barnacles and mussels and clams and all of the life in the sea that built armor plating for itself from carbon dioxide and calcium. That removed carbon dioxide from the oceans over half a billion years to the point where it went from 
180 ppm. Most level in the history of life, Earth occurred just 20,000 and only time it began to warm in concert with the Melanchthon, not with CO2, began to warm and therefore more CO2 came out of the oceans, which have 50 times as much CO2 in them as the atmosphere does. So a small change in oceanic CO2 makes a big change, especially when CO2 is so low in the atmosphere as it is now. And that's all there is to it. We are the salvation of life. But in the same way as the shelled creatures in the sea made armor plating for themselves for protection, not in order to destroy life in the end from sucking all the CO2 out of the atmosphere and the oceans, but for their own survival. And we started using fossil fuels and making cement from limestone, putting CO2 back into the atmosphere, replenishing what had been lost. Not one molecule of CO2 that we put in the atmosphere did not come from the atmosphere in the first place. It's a, a restoration, a reclamation. It is putting it back where it came from, where life flourished all through those millions of years. And it was getting pretty close to the situation where life would begin to die for lack of CO2. So they're so backwards in the whole thing. It's not too hot. It's it's colder than it's been through most of the history of life. This is an ice age. That's why there's ice on the poles. If it wasn't for the, the Pleistocene ice age, there would be no polar bears. They owe their existence to this ice age because they evolved from the Eurasian brown bear in northern Russia and Europe and became white because the ice came on the Arctic so that they could go out there and hunt for seals. And they gradually diverged species-wise to a whole new species because it was cold. That's, that's why there are polar bears, because it's cold. And the, otherwise, they would never have evolved if the Earth had just stayed warm like it had been for 200 million years prior to that, which takes you through the whole existence of mammals, the, the, the dinosaur era. I mean, that's a big period of time, 200 million years. And it wasn't till 50 million years ago when the Eocene thermal maximum occurred. Look it up, E-O-C, Eocene, and you'll find that there was a period 50 million years ago that was one of the warmest in the history of the Earth. And since then, we've been in basically a 50 million year cooling period into this Pleistocene Ice Age, which is the first Ice Age in 250 million years. That is a fact. And I, all I do is speak facts. I, I, I wrote my book, Confes Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout, and then the next one, uh, Fake Invisible Catastrophes, available both on Amazon, Patrick Moore, Amazon, and fake invisible catastrophes will get you a book that will show you how nearly all the scare stories today are based on things that are either invisible like co2 and radiation like polar bears and coral reefs that's why they're the icons that no one can go in themselves the basis of science is observation you can't observe things that are underwater or at the north pole very easy so it's easy for them to make up stories about invisible things and remote things because you can't check it out for yourselves and you become true believers for some reason. Uh, humans are a social animal um, and sheep comes to mind. On the subject of, of the mainstream science, um, even the mainstream science is rather devastating to the political case and is being very carefully shepherded and corralled and um trimmed to suit an agenda uh, one of the 
interesting piece of work I've seen on this is an economist called Bob Murphy, who we've also interviewed um, with the UK column. He was researching uh, the economics of climate change, and he, he was taking the, I, the IPCC official reports, not the summary reports, the technical stuff, and taking it at face value. So he said, right, let's, let's put, all, put aside any concerns over the validity of the computer models, just take what they say. And he said one thing was very strange. They, they had a discount rate, an economic discount rate, which is tiny. It's like 1%. Whereas long-term interest rates are 5 7%, something like that. I still wonder why they've used that. Because what the discount rate does is it compares things across time periods. You know, the, the, the present cost of... of um, future liabilities and things like this. And it's necessary if you're going to compare what's going to happen taking the IPCC's predictions as gospel. And it, it, what he found is that what they were doing is that the, the predictions were, were that warming would actually be beneficial for quite a long period, but they were then predicting some catastrophic out, outcome much later. Um, and you're having to compare short-term benefits with long-term liabilities. And if you took a more normal interest rate, discount rate of something like 5%, and you did their calculation, then the cost of carbon, carbon taxes, uh, comes out negative. In other words, even using their figures, the economic case is that we should be subsidizing coal-fired power stations to get more carbon out there, carbon dioxide. Um, so, you know, it, it's very, it's very notable that the, there is no analysis, there is no intelligent analysis, there is a religious-like incantation and repeating of dogma about these things, but there's no intelligent, thoughtful discussion or debate. It's banned. Now, you mentioned polar bears, so CO2 is one of the public um, rallying calls uh, over the global warming scare. Polar bears must be the other one. Right? So we've all seen animated videos of a polar bear trying to get on an increasingly small cube of ice and, in, in, and, and looking very sad and presumably going off to a lonely death somewhere. And we've seen claims that polar bears are going to go extinct. So polar bears are very much the star because, unless you know one personally, they seem quite cuddly and they look they look good on television. Um, tell us, tell us about you're you're from Canada. You'll have more of a handle on this than I will. Tell us about polar bears. Polar bears are a relatively recent species. They wouldn't be here if we hadn't gone into an ice age called the Pleistocene. They say it was 2.6 million years ago. That's the official demarcation for when we came out of the previous era into this era. And we are still in the Pleistocene Ice Age. Uh, don't listen to the Commission on Stratigraphy. There's this highfalutin international body called the International Commission on Stratigraphy. And they are responsible for reading the layers of rocks uh, in the history of life and figuring out, you know, when life forms began at a certain time. Well, we know for sure that polar bears are really only about 150,000 years old. 
And they evolved from the Eurasian brown bear, which is a common bear all across northern Europe, still there today. It's, it's what made the grizzly bear in North America when the land bridge occurred during the most recent glaciation, when the sea level was 400 feet lower than it is today, 120 meters. And all of the coral reefs that exist today had to grow as the, as the oceans rose up until about 7,000 years ago when the, all the big glaciers had been melted that were going to melt. And so it's leveled off pretty much. You can see this on Wikipedia, the, the, the history of sea level from 30,000 years ago till today. It rose 400 feet. And every coral reef had to rise 400 feet by growing as the sea level rose. And all this stuff about the tropical islands being inundated by the sea, they can grow faster than the sea rises. They grew faster than the sea is rising now by 10 times all through that period from 20,000 to about 7,000 years ago when the glaciers melted. So you have to have a different sense of time than just going back to 1850. And that's what these people are doing. They're saying that beginning in 1850, we started using fossil fuels and now there's a climate crisis because of that. It's complete balderdash. There's nothing to it. It is a hollow husk of an idea. And it is being perpetrated by politicians who want a scare story to get the vote. And so 80% of all science research in the United States is in universities. In these universities, you cannot get a grant about climate unless you are on the scare story side. It just won't, just won't happen. No, not only that, you will be ostracized by your peers and sent out with a pitchfork in your rear end if you do such a thing as to, as to counter the narrative, as they like to call it. So we're stuck in this situation where all this negative information and scare stories are being fed to the politicians so they can use them to make fear in the public, to control the public. And that's what this is. It's just like in a way like COVID, it's a totally different situation, but they did everything they could to make us afraid during COVID instead of giving us hope. And they, they denigrated us and our children, and they, they, they broke the golden rule of medicine, which is do no harm, uh, and that you have everybody has a right to informed consent before having medical treatment of any kind, whether it's a needle or a drug or a, a surgery. You have a right to refuse that under the law of medicine. But they've just thrown that out the window altogether in the same way as they've thrown out rational thought about climate out the window and are saying now that they have a crystal ball, which is obviously a mythical object and, and doesn't actually exist. They have a, a, a crystal ball that can predict the future of the Earth's climate, and it is very, very, very bad. And all of you are going to die if you don't do what we say. And that's basically what they're getting away with. And they're getting away with doing something now. They're going into agriculture and threatening to cut off the supply of food because food is causing global warming. And, oh, isn't that nice? Only the billionaires will be able to afford to buy food and all the other people will die and because uh, there's not enough food. That's what we're heading for if we continue to listen to these people. And they are about to perpetrate one of the most evil acts in the history of human civilization which is to cause poverty and starvation to hundreds of people if they go with this net zero. In order to get net zero, we'd have, first off, we'd have to kill all the animals, including ourselves. 
because we are an emission of CO2. So if you just think of it that way, that we breathe out CO2, uh, they say it's good to talk to your plants. No, it's good to breathe the CO2 on them from your breath because it's 40,000 ppm and it makes them grow better. They say women are better at it than men because the, the, the plants like the women better, their voice, the sound of their voice. No, it's that women are probably not shy as men are about getting close up to their plants and, and hugging them a bit and you know being more personal. So that's why a woman's breath uh, is stronger than a man's breath around a plant. And it's true, they do grow better. And the, the, horticultural, the Royal Horticultural Society buys into the talking uh, explanation that they like you because you're talking to them and therefore they grow better. No, it's the CO2 you're breathing on them. So this is a small example of a scientific fact that is not even recognized by the Royal Horticultural Society who are supposed to know something about plants and, uh, and their life, uh, lifestyle, what they like and don't like. And they do like CO2 from people breathing on them. On the subject of, of the effect of government policy right, and, and, and the strange and counterintuitive, counter-rational uh, nature of it, um, I'd like to finish on that one because we've got this, a strange situation where we're now taking farmland that could be used for growing food and we're growing fuel we're growing fuel that we could get from a from the oil industry, but the oil industry is bad, and we're we're putting that um, fuel in a in an internal combustion engine and we're burning it, and it's producing CO two. But that's good CO two because it's it's sucked in CO two recently from the atmosphere to grow the plant, and this is driving up food prices, driving down the supply of agricultural land. Now. That's been okay so far, but it doesn't take very much many wars in uh, the wheat belt of Ukraine, for example, to start to seriously impact uh, world food supplies. We've been through a very uh, unusual period of, of having ample food on a worldwide basis, basically since about 1990. Um, the amount of absolute poverty has declined at a speed never before seen um, as institutions like, you know, more severe forms of communism have fallen and people have had a chance to thrive and trade and work themselves out of poverty across the world. And as a result, people are healthier, living longer, and there's many positive, positive effects. And to take that benefit and then put it at risk by attacking, by forcing farmers, by incentivizing farmers to not grow food, to grow fuel that we could get from other sources, seems very bizarre. And there are many strange policies like this. There's one that has been in the news this week where they're trying, they're trying to cull 200,000 cows from the herd in Ireland because the cows fart. And this is apparently very bad. And uh, there are all sorts of strange policies cropping up with respect to farming and with respect to energy production. Um, and I think one of the sort of uh, it, it, it finest examples 
of, of things going badly wrong is Germany, a, a, an advanced industrialised nation, um, a nation with many experts in many things and many fine universities. And it's been, uh, it's been putting huge resources into renewable forms of energy generation and has been making itself less and less competitive on a global scale as a result and, and is now facing the prospects of either burning lignite coal to produce electricity or not having the lights on. And this is very strange for, for a, an advanced Western nation to suddenly find itself in this position entirely of its own making, entirely of the making of this false scare story. Um, so if you could perhaps, um, in the last few minutes we've got today, just explain how some of these government policies are, are working out and perhaps uh, you might say a few words about Germany specifically as, a, as one of the most enthusiastic and, um, and, and uh, deep-pocketed um, examples of a Western nation you know, really embracing this ideology. Yes, well, it's too hard to believe that we would be against the most important food for plants and against now then against food, actually. I mean, we are talking about the most important things for the survival of ourselves every day, food and energy. There are no two, there no, nothing else is as important as those two things, water, right? It's part of food. Uh, they haven't decided to cut the water off just yet. But if they go ahead with what they are thinking and planning, they will cause a ruination the likes of which the earth has never seen. Because there are over 8 billion of us, and 4 billion of us depend on nitrogen fertilizer, which they now say is bad, because it's a greenhouse gas or whatever. It, it, it isn't actually a greenhouse gas, but they've got some story about how nitrogen uh, in the form of nitrous oxide is going to cause the earth to warm up to unacceptable degrees. It's all completely phony. And so is the campaign against CO2, completely phony. There's nothing to it. It's not a real thing. And yet they have made it into a real thing in the West in particular, Russia, India, and China are busy building coal plants and nuclear plants, which uh, I would build more nuclear plants and less coal plants just because fossil fuels are a precious commodity that we don't want them to run out sooner than later. Uh, we'd rather them last for later, especially for things that can't run on anything else, like airplanes need fossil fuels. You can't run an airplane with a nuclear reactor, but you can run anything that's stationary with a nuclear reactor, anything that needs electricity or heat, you can provide with nuclear power. And we in Canada and US here, we have a hundred, over 100 nuclear plants running 24 seven. No one even knows it's happening and no one has ever been injured by them, never mind killed. It's one of the safest technologies that's ever been invented and people are afraid of it, again, because of these storytellers who want us to be afraid of everything. And they want us to be afraid of our own shadow, as they say. And I'm not afraid. And actually, that was one of my mottos from the beginning in Greenpeace. We, we all went out on the high seas and we had a song, I'm not afraid, as like an opera type tone. You know, I'm pretty good at that. And uh, I'm not afraid. 
that's all I'll, I, I could finish by saying that, that I am not afraid of the climate. I am not afraid of, of, the, of the earth. This is a beautiful planet. There's no other like it that we know of. We don't know if there's any other planet with life on it in the universe. If we find one, that would be wonderful. Then we'd know there's life somewhere else. But we don't know that. This may well be a unique situation that we are in, and we should thank the heavens for it. I'm not a religious person, but I still know that infinity is there, and, and the wonder of this universe is there, and I appreciate it, and I'm not afraid of it because it's allowed me to live to be uh, nearly 76 years old, and I'm in good health because of modern medicine and science, and I wish people would uh, go back to uh, trying to figure out what the science is rather than what the mythology and scare stories are that, that are being used to frighten our children and frighten our people. Not everybody has a PhD in science, and these people in the World Economic Forum don't have one either. Uh, they are foisting mythology and lies on us in order to control us and we have to somehow get the average person to understand that and to resist it because i know the uk has gas underneath its soil that would last for 50 or 100 years even with what's just known now you always find more later and so you could probably be just fine on electricity from natural gas which is a very pure substance the result is co2 and water when it's burned and the CO2 will help replenish the atmosphere and the oceans, which we, which have been depleted by the shellfish, the evil shellfish, uh, have done this to us. Uh, Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today. It's been lovely talking to you. Uh, until next time, uh, thank you.